I always wanted to be a composer. That was the dream. That was always the goal. That was what all of my life was working towards. But I didn't really know that that was going to be a composer for film or television. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Roman Molino Dunn is on the show. Roman is an award-winning composer, billboard charting music producer, using the pseudonym ElectroPoint, and co-owner of Mirror Tone Studios in New York City. His film and TV composing work includes Uricon on HBO Max, Snakehead, a Samuel Goldwyn Films production, Laser Candy on Netflix, RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars, and Red Rocket. Roman also works as a film music producer and recording engineer, and in that capacity has most recently worked on The Card Counter, directed by Paul Schrader and executive produced by Martin Scorsese. In 2021, Roman worked on films that screened at the Cannes, Venice, and Toronto film festivals. TV networks that have used his work include HBO, A&E, MTV, Netflix, Paramount+, Discovery, TLC, and NBC, among many others. Brands who have used his music include Burger King, PayPal, Marriott, Michael Kors, NBC, Clinique, Snapple, Maserati, and Tom Ford. In addition to corporate and film music composition, as a music producer, Roman has worked with major and indie labels and Grammy-winning artists, including GLAAD-nominated albums, particularly with reality TV stars on shows like RuPaul's Drag Race and Real Housewives of New Jersey, and his productions and soundtracks have climbed both the Billboard and iTunes Top 20 charts. In this interview, we cover a lot of ground, including what a day in the life of a film composer looks like, and how he works with directors early in the film process versus late in the process. Roman also shares how his classical music education helps him creatively and collaboratively in the TV and film world. It was fascinating to talk to a film producer at the top of his game and see how his creative process unfolds in television and film. And I hope you agree. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Roman Molino Dunn. Roman Molino Dunn? Welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I've been following you on social media for a while, and I've noticed that your projects are just becoming more prolific and more impressive in terms of the directors you're working with and the types of projects you're getting involved in are just amazing. I watched Snakehead, I watched The Card Counter, I watched Urakan. You're doing some really fun stuff. Oh, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you saying that and then also taking the time to check them out. You know, I, I really do appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting because music in film is something I don't think most folks really pay attention to in terms of consciously, because if you're conscious of the music, you're really not conscious of the story. So I think when most people are doing, at least me, maybe this is just me, but I focus on the story and also the emotion that I'm feeling. And of course, when you drill down on that and you really get to the root cause of why you're feeling something, it is almost always tied to either the music choices or the lack of music choices. So you have the pauses between the music where it's a decision I think the director probably makes to not have music in a certain spot. But it's so, so important to have somebody that knows about emotion and knows about story in the music process. So tell us how you got involved in film and television, because your journey starts way back, and I've watched a few other interviews with you. It's, it sounds like your journey started way back when you were three or four years old, taking piano lessons and other instrument lessons. And here you are in film and television, working with some of the greatest directors and producers of all time. So how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, um, it, it came about, um, I mean, it was a long uh, journey, you know, um, I've been doing this for a long time. But, you know, I started out doing uh, classical music as a child. And, you know, my parents made sure I had a, a good musical education. Um, and I always wanted to be a composer. That was, that was the dream. That was always the goal. That was what all of my life was working towards, but I didn't really know that that was going to be a composer for film or television. Okay, let's stop right there. Yeah. I, 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 I want to go back to the point in time in your life when you said, I want to be a composer. How old were you? 
Oh, like three or four. I mean, it was, it was as soon as I started playing the piano, I wanted to play it because I wanted to make music that was my own. And that kind of lended itself to some non-traditional, I, I don't want to say discovery or education, but, you know, I was the, the kid who didn't want to practice, but instead I wanted to make my own inventions, that kind of thing. Mm, mm-hmm. So you were a tough kid to get to practice the traditional way. Well, the traditional way, yeah, but I, I mean, it would be like the kind of thing where I played the piano for five hours, but I didn't do my piano lesson right. <laughs> homework, you know? You were doing other stuff other than the assignment. Yeah, but as I got older, I started to realize that I would find more creative freedom by placing these restraints on myself. And it's just a journey every musician, every composer goes through, but you know, you, you each go through it in your own way. I, I was very lucky that there was this maybe slightly more rigid uh, supervision <laughs> um, over my studies. So eventually I, I really did get a very good foundation. You know, I studied theory. That was, you know, my actual bachelor's degree is in music theory. So I, I've always been a very strong believer in like a traditional education, just so you know where the like, if you want to think outside the box, you kind of have to know where the box is. Right. So I was very lucky to eventually learn um, a lot of the Western tradition. And eventually I learned Eastern traditions and other uh, musical languages. Um, but when I was a child, I was I was trying to find my own way very early on. And I think that type of you know, proclivity for uh, your own way of thinking is probably indicative of uh, being a composer more than a performer. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you talk about other musical languages, because I've always thought of music, academic music, where you're going and studying music theory, and you can write notes on a page, you can listen to a composition and actually know what key it's in and what time signature it's in. That type of understanding of music to me is a foreign language. <laughs> and I think it taps into the same part of the brain that foreign languages do. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong, but that's just how I've always thought of it. Do you see music, like when you look back on your childhood, starting at age three or four, does it seem like you were learning the equivalent of a foreign language? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, in, to, to that end, sometimes I have a harder time finding words than I do finding melodies or <laughs> just communicating like a normal human being because I spend so much time speaking this other language right. that I'm probably more well-versed in communicating uh, a feeling or an emotion uh, using music or, or just sitting down at the, the piano or an, another instrument and communicating a feeling or a thought a lot quicker than I am trying to find the the verbiage to communicate it in English. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. And we'll, we'll get to your journey down the road in the interview, but I'm fascinated by the fact that you have all of this classical training and this music theory training, yet there are other folks in the industry. Like I interviewed Richard Patrick from Filter and his music background is playing for Nine Inch Nails and then starting the band Filter, and then he's scoring films. I don't think that guy has a fraction of the music theory knowledge that you do. I could be wrong. Maybe that's an unfair statement, but that's just my impression of Richard. I, I interviewed him at his studio in Los Angeles, and he's doing fine. I mean, he's doing great and um, working on some fun projects, but you have this really granular understanding of music. How does that help you in terms of working in television and film with directors who don't speak that same language as you, right? Yeah, yeah. They're coming at you with what they want as an outcome, but how do you incorporate that foreign language that you know that they don't? I, I mean, I think, well, there's a few parts there. I think one of the the benefits to having this uh, understanding, the theoretical understanding is it's, it really manifests itself in two ways, the benefit of, of this knowledge. Uh, one is that uh, I can provide revisions <laughs> uh, because, you know, and I've worked with people who don't have classical backgrounds on many, many projects collaboratively, either songs or film or television. And it's just a different way of thinking. But the, I mean, the benefit to being educated in any craft is, is certainly 
you know, uh, I think it is advantageous to be educated, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, it depends what type of education you have. Sure. And, and so I'm sure an individual like that is very educated in a different way in practice rather than in theory and can translate that in there. But the benefit to having it in theory is one revisions become a bit easier uh, because I understand um, how to make the changes mm. at, a, at a very deeper uh, level um, of the content of the music. And then the the real benefit that I've seen in my career from having this is that I can work in a variety of styles. Um, so like, for example, Urakan was this very synth-based, steamy, ambient situation, but then Snakehead had uh, a lot of like waltzes in it and stuff. Uh, and then I also do pop music for dance artists. And it's all the same because I understand the music theory behind it. So when somebody sends me a reference track, I don't have to do trial and error to do it. I would just listen to the music and transcribe uh, the notation in my head. Mm -hmm. And then once I do that, I can understand the underlying musical language of it. So um, being able to analyze music in whatever way you do it uh, is really helpful when working with other collaborators, especially if they don't have the language, um, because it's a lot easier when somebody gives me a reference piece of music, like if a director if a director starts telling me what chords to use and what what their melody is, it, it's a it's a harder um, job, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a lot easier when they give me a piece of music that they like and say, "I like the sadness represented here," and then I can pick it apart what that means from a theoretical standpoint, and then write something that's similar. Right. For me, as you were just talking, I was thinking of metaphors or analogies of other industries where, for instance, in the construction industry, if a customer, a homeowner says, I want you to remodel my bathroom or my master bedroom. If you hire someone who is really good in construction, but doesn't know about architecture, has no understanding of the history of architecture, is not an interior designer, then they're possibly going to be at a disadvantage. Not for sure, but yeah. you know, it's it, you're just not going to have that broader sort of gestalt understanding of building and styles and function and that type of thing. And, and for you to not only have a pop sensibility and to work with pop artists, and obviously you listen to current music, and even if it's not your thing, you're tuned into it, but you also have that theoretical background. So you are the architect, you are the interior designer, and you are the general contractor, all built into one human being. Yeah, thanks. I mean, at uh, fear of sounding, uh, you know, like you never want to sound elitist when you talk about music education, right? Because I really do think it's wonderful. There's such a a variety of voices and experiences in the uh, music composition and music for media space. But at the end of the day, I really think music education is just incredibly important. Um, and, And there's other, you know, it doesn't have to be this Western tradition of you know, classical music theory, it can be something else you could study, you know, for example, a lot of composers now are coming from rock bands, right? And it's amazing because in order for them to achieve at that high of a level in uh, being an artist, they're obviously really uh, good at what they do. Um, And so it's just a whole nother voice and they've studied that of and, you know, there, there's a whole benefit that comes from making music in that fashion that um, maybe you won't get in, in music theory training, uh, but it's good to have a well-rounded uh, experience. Meaning if you did go to school for music, let, let me put it this way. I studied classical music very deeply, but I would not have been a good film composer right out of college. It wasn't until I started recording pop music and I understand, uh, started to understand music production that uh, I was capable of making music for films of the level that I'm doing. Um, And the same for probably a rock artist. They go the other way. Maybe they did all the music production and playing and performing. And then eventually they come back to learning some of the uh, orchestral skill sets that they need in order to write. So uh, everybody's got a slightly different path on it on this journey. Right. For my listeners who probably don't know, most of them probably don't know the distinction between a film composer or scorer and someone who is an engineer versus someone who works in the music department as a producer when you've done all those things. Can you tell my listeners what those folks do and what those titles mean in music and television? 
Sure. So uh, it is blurring. It is starting to blur heavily, just like everything is, I think, in this day of modern production technologies. Traditionally, uh, let's step back from uh, film just for a second. But in, in music, you know, you have the uh, artist, whoever's performing it. And then you have the recording engineer, and that's the individual who will be hanging up the microphones, getting the recording uh, console set, uh, hitting record on the program, editing it, that kind of thing. And the producer would be who oversees that entire process uh, and also has creative input in uh, things. Now, they're all kind of blurring together. And like when I do a song for an artist, for example, I'm the recording engineer, I'm the producer, I'm the songwriter, they're just the uh, performer. And I'm doing all of those services. And when I do music for film, uh, oftentimes I'm also doing all, if I'm composing a film, I pretty much engineer, record, produce, mix, master my scores. That's just, that's what I do. I'm a full package kind of music composer. Not on every project, for example, like on the card counter, you know, I didn't compose the score for that. I was uh, a music producer. So in that production, and to some degree, that was what you were talking about, where people have differing backgrounds. The composer to that um, was somebody from a rock background. Um, and I came in to help make sure the score was recorded in a way that was flexible for the music editor, because this was a different type of production that had some old school roles. And then the music editor would take the music that we recorded and lay it in with the director and make some adjustments that the director wanted to do after the initial recording has been done. Okay. And so that's not always the case. That's uh, somewhat... It's very common, but it's not always the case that you have a music editor anymore. Um, higher higher end productions and particularly film and television will rely on, sorry, television will rely on it more because uh, television deadlines are very quick. So like TV shows that I've done, for example, I would make the music and then send it to the editors. I never saw the, the film and I wouldn't do it directly to picture um, they just, the deadlines were too tight. We need mm. this kind of music um, and use some of the themes you did for this. And then our music editor will put it together while you're working on the next batch of songs. Mm. Okay. And that's not my preferred way to work. I prefer uh, films, feature films where I get to watch it and write music to every single move, every single word that comes out of these actors' mouths in the way that it does. But it's just a different way of, you know, producing film or television. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that look like when you're, I mean, technically, I'm guessing that you have to have timestamps of your recording and the, the movie that you're watching so that your thought process is reflected exactly in the timing of what you're matching up music to film. Yeah. So what program are you using? And not to get too techy, but I'm just curious, how do you do that? Sure. So... Yeah, for films, when I'm scoring directly to picture, which is what I think uh, we're talking about here, as opposed to the the more library kind of approach, mm -hmm. uh, I use Pro Tools, which is made by Avid. Uh, it's pretty much an industry standard in the television and film world as far as the audio post-production part of things. A lot of people will do their writing of the music in uh, Cubase uh, is a very common one. But because everybody eventually moves to Pro Tools to do their final mix and to deliver it to um, the film editors, in, they, that's done in Pro Tools. I do the entire process in Pro Tools. Mm. And it's not uncommon. I mean, a lot of composers uh, of all levels use Pro Tools to score. Um, that's what Richard Patrick uses too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's the thing, you know, it's like I said, it's been around a long time, industry standard. And uh, the way it works is you drop in the film or whatever part of the film they've given you, if it's not uh, done yet, I love to come in um, very early in the process if possible. And I'm sure most composers probably do too, if the budget's good enough. I mean, if, if the budget's not very good, you wanna, it has to be an efficient job, you know, cause this is a day job for us. So it's gotta get done in a reasonable turnaround. But when possible, I love to get brought on very early. And when you do that, sometimes you might not get the whole movie. You might just get a scene when it's ready to start workshopping ideas. Yeah. But when I do get an entire film, I drop it in and then not to get too nerdy with all the timestamps, you'll go through and you'll start putting markers for the moments that you'd like to hit. Mm. 
And that starts to map out the structure of the composition as far as the form goes or, or the skeleton of what you're doing. And then you start to get a bit more granular where, um, well, this is the big kiss. So I want a big harmony here. Um, and you start to map out your chord progression. And then once you have that you know, skeleton or form, if you will, you would use that the same way uh, a composer would use like a sonata allegro form or, you know, uh, in pop music, a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, yeah. you're seeing these sections and then you write music to that form when possible. Sometimes it's a little less uh, organized than that, you know? Yeah, that's fascinating. So if you get involved early, really early in the process, and let's say you're, you're given a script mm -hmm. and you don't have anything to look at visually other than the words on a page, do you get anything from a script? I mean, a value as a, as a composer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so I'm doing that right now. I just got a, a script for a new feature and uh, I'm going through and doing some sketches. And I love that a lot, actually, because- Like drawings? What do you mean sketches? <laughs> no, uh, um, so sketches would I would what I mean by that musical sketches. Yeah, musical sketches. Yeah. Okay, got it. Um, so just they used to be back in the day, you know, more just like piano demos kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but now with modern technology, I'm they're pretty much fully composed, produced, recorded pieces of music. And sometimes they get used in the film also, if the sketch is just so awesome, maybe it'll be used for a moment that it doesn't have to be to picture like a montage, mm -hmm. or maybe they'll cut to it. And when pe what that means is the editor will go in and use that piece of music and make all their edits based on your piece of music. So it's kind of backwards to what you think about regular film scoring. And that's a really awesome a wonderful thing when that happens because then you're like in the DNA of the film uh, from the from the beginning, mm. and then it kind of composes itself. That's what happened with Urakan. I did sketches or overtures to a quote, and then once we had that, uh, most of the the palette, if you will, the the instruments. That's a good word, palette. I like that. Yeah, the sonic palette. Yeah. Um, yeah. What came from that? Uh, original overture. So yeah, when, when you get the script, it's wonderful um, because you can have, but again, this is not to get off of the artistic part of it for a second, but the pragmatic professional business aspect of it is that that is very timely, uh, time consuming and uh, can become maybe not a reasonable thing to always do if it's a lower budget production, you know? Mm -hmm. So Talking about the business aspects of this, tell us, and I'm not asking for private, you know, financial information about how much you make, but I'm just curious about the financial arrangements with a film production company or maybe an indie filmmaker. Are you charging by the day? Are you charging by the project? How do you make sure that you're fairly compensated for the time that you're putting in? And also, are there circumstances where you can be compensated on the back end? Yes. Maybe like some of the talent would be. Yeah, absolutely. So I could speak to all of that. For um, most of the projects that I do, it's a project-based rate. So um, traditionally, those things were based on a percentage of the overall budget of the film, and then you would just choose: can I can I work for that rate? Right? Um, you know. And so that's still kind of how it's done to some degree. Uh, you know, most of the time you get approached with a number they know how much money they have set aside for it. And that's what it is. And they're going to try to find a composer who fits that rate. And then sometimes they can't find a composer who fits that rate and that they'll up their rate and start looking because, you know, the pool gets smaller and smaller right. if you go up or, and if you go down, because uh, you're doing it based on experience most of the time. Um, they're looking for a composer who has enough features under their belt or enough TV shows under their belt. It's just like anything, right? You know, you want to hire an experienced individual and what's the going rate. But that going rate tends to be based on like a percentage of the overall uh, film's budget. I've done other arrangements, but that's typically what it is. And how do you make sure that you cover your, uh, your losses, so to speak? I mean, you almost always, I don't want to say you always lose money on it, but you when you're passionate about your job, you're always going to spend more time than you were uh, compensated for on it. And so right. 
Right. For me, it's more like uh, I probably should have gotten paid more by, uh, based on how many revisions and how long I worked on this project. But did it? Is it a, a you know a viable living? Yes. So it's okay. Um, and when it's not, then you have to you know <laughs> you have to uh, reconsider in the future the next project that looks like it. Right. And then on the back end, uh, the way it works is uh, you get depending on how your music is distributed. So actually how the film or television show is distributed. If it's on a network television show or one of the big streamers, you're going to get back end um, that's collected through what's called a performing rights organization. Hmm. So these things called ASCAP and BMI and CSAC, they are collecting royalties the same way that when a song gets played on the radio, whoever wrote that song is getting a nickel getting back in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, um, Spotify really, you know, uh, screwed with this because these things are protected by law. They're, there's rates that are set and they're, you know, there's legislation behind them. And then Spotify kind of, because of the internet, was able to get away with different rates. Mm. And that stuff has since been negotiated again in the last three years. And it's something composers watch very closely because like I said, I don't always make a lot of money uh, on the front end of a film based on how much time I spent on it. And so for me, it's very important that the government is protecting intellectual property. And right, yeah, I get royalties on music that is in a film if the film makes it to somewhere that uh, reports the performances. So when it plays in the theater in the United States, I don't get any money, hmm. which is a shame. But if it plays on network television, I would. Yeah. So no box office back end. Uh, well, so there's box office back end in uh, the international markets because they have different laws. Mm. Um, that counts as a real performance. And I'm just talking about the uh, composition. So some composers are able to negotiate like points, like, you know. Yeah. Oh, right in the contract. Yeah. Yeah. Which is something different. Um, but as far as, you know, like a, a very big composer who's putting their name on a project and maybe taking it under rate would want some points. I've done that before uh, where I got some points because the fee was too low. And so I said, could you sweeten it a little bit? Um, but that's always a risky, I mean, in a lot of uh, cases, what it's saying is they didn't have the necessary budget. Right. And so the odds of them being able to market it very well and you getting your back end is a little bit, yeah, <laughs> it's less likely. Well, I've heard a lot of awful stories about how film studios and production companies the way they define back end, way the, the way they define profit almost makes it impossible to get fairly compensated on the back end unless you're a, a superstar, you know, a list actor or something, and you have it really built in solid. But yeah, those uh, th those back end deals are fascinating to me. What's the smallest royalty check you've ever received? <laughs> well, they stop cutting them when they get that small. So uh, with ASCAP, I mean, there's been months. Uh, in the past where it was like a penny, you know, <laughs> or fractions of a penny, but then they don't send a check. They just, their model now is wait till it adds up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough thing. It's a real evolving field right now because of the internet. They weren't able to really quantify it quick enough, quickly enough as to what, like what category does the internet fall into? Mm. Because it's not public, but is it public? You know, it's just, it's a difficult thing. It's catching up though. I'm very, I'm very optimistic actually about the future of it. Nice. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. I'd like to ask you about decision-making as a film composer. The frame of reference I have for this question is that I'm sitting here in my studio, and I see you're in your studio, and you've got all these fancy you know, keyboards, and I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking <laughs> at, but there's a lot of technical stuff behind you. And in front of me is a Yamaha motif keyboard. And, you know, I can get some sounds out of it. Like I know how to navigate to the sounds that I like, the grand piano sounds, and but it, it is way more instrument than I have the aptitude to understand and have the time to learn. 
And there's so many options. I mean, we're talking literally millions and millions of different variations of beats and sounds that you can get out of just this one instrument. And you have lots of these types of instruments. And as a composer, you also have the ability to go get ambient sound right outside your front door, get birds, get cars driving by. And so you, you have so many choices in front of you as you're sitting down in front of a movie screen. Do you ever get overwhelmed by all of the decisions that you have to make? And how do you break through that feeling of being overwhelmed to actually start making decisions that you're confident about sharing with the folks who hired you? Yeah, I mean, um, a few things. So one, I'm lucky that it is collaborative in the sense that I feel like I would be more overwhelmed. Like if I sit down to make a piece of music for myself, which happens very rarely these days, <laughs> I, f I face what you're, what you're describing here. W where should I start? You know, I have all of these great instruments. I've loved playing all of them on different projects. What do I do? And that's a real problem. But when I work on a film, as soon as somebody says something about what they're looking for, I know what it is because I've spent, you know, my entire life playing instruments and looking through sounds. So uh, something comes to mind immediately when somebody describes, you know, what their piece is about. I yeah, I don't think I've ha ever had a lack of inspiration as far as which instrument to start with when it comes to a collaborative uh, process, and that's part of the beauty I think about it. Really, uh, as you're. I'm, I'm not making music for myself. And when you make it for somebody else, it, it's a lot easier to, uh, you know, s s right. plant that seed. You're, gi you're given an assignment, you're given a framework. Yeah. And so you have that context as opposed to just this literally a blank slate. It's not blank. Yeah. Because, you know, you have some parameters. That's, that's nice. So what does that process look like with someone like, for example... I know you weren't the film composer in The Card Counter, but Paul Schrader, huge, huge writer and producer and director, you know, Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and uh, a very famous guy. How do you work with someone like that? Or maybe a, a first-time filmmaker like in Urakan, I assume this was his directorial debut. How do you work with them right from the beginning? Like, what are the first questions that are being asked? And what is a day in the life? of Roman Molino Dunn look like as you're in that collaborative process? Yeah, well, so it, uh, the days kind of blur together, but uh, the, the early on, on it, it, it's a spotting session. So you're sitting with the, composer, uh, with the director and the composer, myself, we'll be together watching the film um, and taking notes as to where we want music and what's the feeling of the music. And that's not always in person anymore. Uh, a lot of times I'll just get a spreadsheet um, or an itemized list from somebody. And then my day is pulling up Pro Tools, dropping in the film, bringing up their list and starting to write the first cue. And uh, once I, I'll generally like on a film like Urakan, I'll do it in reels, which means that the film's been split up into five chunks. Uh, sometimes it's three chunks, but it's just, it kind of, it's a term that comes back from when they had like spools and like reels of film. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just smaller right. portions of the film for us to work in chunks. Bite-sized. Yeah. Although they're, they can be sometimes very long. Uh, and so I'll do a reel and that's like 20 minutes of music often. And then I'll send it to the director and they'll give me some feedback as to what they like, what they dislike. And we'll start to, ch uh, you know, I won't do what they disliked again. Uh, and I'll do what they did like. I'll lean into that. And you start to discover their musical proclivities and inclinations for the film. And that's why it's actually quite easy for me not to get any type of writer's block or producer's block or composer's block because these are people who don't necessarily speak the same language or know what instruments I'm using. Uh, they're just having this visceral reaction to the new music that's put to the film they've been working on for a very long time. And they tend to know better than you if it fits as to what they're trying to express in their filmmaking. And then my days are just that over and over again <laughs> until we get very close to the end, at which point some more technical things start to happen, like exporting in certain formats and finalizing the mix um, and sending it off to the sound designer to incorporate into the dialogue and sound effects. And yeah, it's... How long is that process? I mean, we're talking about a month, two weeks, or just varies? 
depends on the film really. So like for Card Counter, for example, that we were in the recording studio for a month uh, with Paul. Um, and, you know, again, I didn't compose that one. I was just the producer. But so I'm, I'm just sitting behind the recording console for 12 hours a day for 30 days kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And 12 hour days. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that those were some long sessions and you know but those were rock songs a lot of the score, right? So um you know mm-hmm. it's cool. That that's like, you know, it's what people think a recording studio is like, you know, like yeah. you're sitting behind the console, someone's playing the drums, somebody's sketching on a guitar, somebody's coming in, you know, bringing drinks and uh it was a fun time, you know, although it was during COVID, so we had to, you know, get tested daily and this was in the height of it. It was it was quite a scene, man. I'll always remember that uh, experience from, you know, not only it being COVID, but working with Paul Schrader on on anything really. It was pretty cool. But with like for Snakehead, for example, the last film I just did, um, you know, that took maybe six or seven months of composing. Um, oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah. But that's... Be- that's a big commitment. But that's because they took maybe seven or eight years to make the film. Um, and so every decision I made was very deliberate and and had to go through a lot of uh not revision just like we we just made sure it was as well thought out as it possibly could be um there was lots of scenes that went through no revision and there was lots of scenes that went through like 10 versions then we found a new language and it's great i mean it just depends on the project really interesting uh scenes in snakehead where i think like 30 minutes in 33 minutes in there was a almost like a Delphonics sounding Chinese pop song or rock song or disco song. And by Delphonics, I mean uh, like a Jackie Brown soundtrack mm-hmm. type of song. And then same thing at the end. So who's making those choices? Because throughout the entire film, it's very dark. I mean, dark material, dark looking. Mm-hmm. So the tones are dark. And then you have this almost whimsical song that's 30 minutes in and, and then the last song same thing. So who's making those choices and were you involved in those musical choices? Yeah. So um, in in this, a lot of cases, that's uh, a collaboration between the music supervisor and the director. Um, in this case, there was no music supervisor. The director just chose that piece of music. Mm-hmm. And I only thing that I had to do with it was if they couldn't clear it, I would have to make something similar to it. Oh, okay. You know, I I thought it was a good choice. It broke up the film and then it it put a nice bookend on the back of it. You know, it was that hinting at like some positivity and good, you know, like I don't want to, I, I was going to say good feeling. And then I started thinking good fellas because it's so related, but uh, it's just that kind of throwback uh, feeling on purpose so that everybody has like whenever you, uh, songs are used in movies. A lot of times they're used for the nostalgia effect. So it's not necessarily like, is this the perfect song? Or does it convey everything we want? It's more just like, we need people to have nostalgia and attachment at this moment. Mm. And no matter what our composer does, it won't have that same feeling as something somebody might recognize, especially in a certain community. And so, when the, that happens in a film, I'm all about it. You know, I, I step back for a second. This isn't about hitting the subtleties of the emotion on screen necessarily. Sometimes it is, but in a song like that, that's not what it was. So yeah, I didn't have anything to do with that one. It was cool because it was the only time in the entire film uh, that they had that. You know, a lot of films have other music supervision, um, but I've been very lucky that most of the films I've worked on, I've scored the entire film without any music supervision. And then in this one, it, it came right in the middle and it was actually very welcomed by by myself. I thought it was a great touch. Yeah, I'm always curious. I, I've interviewed a few film composers and I'm always curious about the mix of actual you know, pre-written songs into the score and h- how those mix. And, and I thought it was a, a great mix of really dark music. And then all of a sudden you have this, this sort of upbeat nostalgic moment. And I like that word nostalgia because I didn't come up with that word as, as I was feeling it, but you've just described it. And you also mentioned Goodfellas. Tell us more about Goodfellas because I think that's a, a great analogous journey in terms of mm-hmm. Sister C. So she is this fish out of water dropped into this crime world. 
And and, and Goodfellas kind of has a similar narrative where Mm -hmm. there's someone who is in this world who doesn't belong. And, and the audience knows it, and that creates a lot of inherent tension that you need in a good film, right? Uh, so were you looking at other films like Goodfellas to inspire you in any way? And what type of research did you do for Snakehead and other films like perhaps Urukan? Um, So I wasn't directly looking at Goodfellas when I was doing it, but I mean, it's it's a film everybody knows. Everybody who loves uh, cinema is familiar with it to some degree. And I I love those films. And uh, Evan, the director of Snakehead, was is a, a big fan of like mob films. And also because with mob films, what happens a lot of the time is half of the story is on the culture of the individuals involved with it, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. that's part of the reason that they ended up doing what they did because of the ethnic enclaving of uh, these characters. And I think that there are some similarities to Goodfellas in the sense there's the narration uh, and it's this epic in the sense that it doesn't take place over just a few days. You know, uh, Goodfellas is a longer timeline than this was, but uh, I love films like that a lot. I mean, as soon as there's a narrator, I'm in it, you know, like we're on a journey. That's just great storytelling, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But what I did take from it was that you needed to have this touch of romance in order to sell the the criminality uh, and to pull in the viewer uh, to relate and care about these characters. And, And so that was basically all I took from it. And as far as research goes, you know, we we stayed away from traditional Chinese folk instruments for the most part in Snakehead, uh, except when there are there's a very big cultural moment that happens, the lion dance, which happens in Chinatown every year. Uh, and so we use music from that world to, you know, um, a fresh composition, but using the same rhythms and drums mm-hmm. that they use. Uh, but the rest of the film, we didn't want to pigeonhole this as this needs Chinese music or Chinese American music. That wasn't fair to the narrative. Uh, this isn't just, I mean, it's a, it's a story about Chinese characters, but you don't have to see them as only Chinese characters. That's not a fair telling of what they're going through. So uh, we went with where the story went. And then with Urakan, less research was needed because I was doing the psychology uh, aspect of it. And so that's a very natural place to go as a composer, right? Like you just need to know what is a twisted sound sound like? What is, uh, you know, a very sad sound sound like? And um, didn't need to do as much research as somebody who's maybe doing a period drama would do. So what are your go-to instinctive instruments or sounds for certain types of feelings? For example, if there's a a kiss and it's a romantic kiss, and maybe it's the first kiss of the whole movie, you would go to what sounds for that versus a kiss that's a little more ominous. Sure. Maybe it's someone's like, oh, this woman doesn't know who she's getting involved with, that type of thing. So with those two scenes, what is your go-to instrument or sound? Okay, so I'll let me let me flip it just a little uh, because the instruments are often decided by a much a much broader uh, read on the film. So, for example, with uh, Urakan, it was all of these uh, synths and uh, strings played through synthesizers. So the the instruments had been decided, or the the world uh, of instruments, like a larger palette, you know, like we were saying, had been decided. So then I need to. Ch- play those instruments in a specific way for a specific scene. So I have go-to harmonies uh, for the most part is what, I, what I'll do. So mm. I can make a beautiful kiss moment on a piano and, and violins, which would be like, you know, the most cliche way to do it, which is appropriate sometimes. Um, but I could also play that same content on... Um, you know, some really dark bowed metals with, uh, you know, an old school uh, Juno 06 playing. Um, and as long as the the chords are correct and the suspensions and the melody and the tempo and everything, you're going to get that feeling. It's just going to be in that world. Oh, so, so you're using the same chords and chord progression and notes, but just different sounding instruments or, um, yeah, different sounding instruments. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, 
Can you give us an example? I mean, is there a way for you to do that right now? Or are you not set up to do that? <laughs> not quite set up to do that. Um, but, but, you know, if you do play, um, you know, Chopin, for example, on a piano, or if you play Chopin on, uh, you know, a dark, gritty synth sound, it will still have that touch of uh, that romantic, you know, feeling that is there because of the content of the music. Now, granted, it might end up being too dark for the scene, right? And then you have to find a different synth that might be a little bit better, or maybe you mix and match the two of those. I mean, I almost always reach for uh, a piano because that's what I uh, learned music on. And then secondly, I'll reach for strings, uh, you know, violins. Uh, I really love violas and cellos. Um, and then I'll start re reaching for synthesizers after that. But they're kind of interchangeable at this point. Um, it's really just a matter of what language the director has chosen for the film. Tell us about the pseudonym ElectroPoint. Sure. So, um, as I was saying in my uh, trajectory to, to becoming a, a film composer, it was a little roundabout. And after I got out of uh, college, and I had learned all of this classical music stuff, I needed to make a living. And it was not so apparent how to do that in classical music as a composer. And what ended up happening is I was a uh, music transcriber and I was writing out sheet music uh, by ear for other composers. And that led to being an arranger. And that led me to going to the recording studio with the people that I was doing arranging for. And what ended up happening was I was losing money as a professional going to all these recording studios. So I thought I should open a recording studio. So I found a business partner, opened a recording studio. And when you have a recording studio, you have to record whatever comes in. And uh, a lot of what came in at the time was uh, pop singers. Um, and I started recording them and um, I was also writing music for them. And I started doing a lot of music for um, drag queens and reality TV stars, and I thought it would be wise to disaggregate my given name from the production work I was doing in the not classical and not uh, film scorey space. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to use ElectroPoint, and um, I still do a lot of work as a producer for uh, reality TV stars mostly. And I still use that name just to differentiate um, the work I'm, you know, it's, it, it's kind of come together where directors don't really care that you can do pop music and pop musicians don't really care that you can do film music. It used to be a little bit more like that guy is writing EDM music. He's not going to be able to do orchestral stuff for our film. And that's why I really separated it back then. But now it doesn't seem to really make much of a difference. So your studio, just to give proper credit to your recording studio. It's Mirror Tone, correct? Yes. And that's in New York City? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that keeps you pretty busy, I would assume, when you're not scoring films? Yeah. I mean, not as much as it, it used to. I mean, I live in Los Angeles now, and the studio is in New York City, and uh, we have engineers that run it for us these days because the film work has kind of taken over my life. And I still go back. I go back to New York maybe once a month or once every other month uh, during COVID. And, you know, I'll go for recording sessions or to, you know, record artists or, or to work on film scoring stuff where I need a, a space to actually record some of it. Nice. A random question. I forgot to ask you. Sure. About, it's a prior interview that you did where you talked about Mad Max Fury Road and the sound design on that film. I know you weren't involved in that, but that you were impressed with the sound design. And my question is, what is sound design on a movie? Sure. So, I mean, the ease, it's, that's a really big topic, but uh, the simplest uh, way to describe it for people who might not be familiar is the sounds that are not the music. Uh, but it's much more, you know, so when somebody's walking the footsteps, when a gun fires, the sound of the gun. Okay. That kind of uh, basic stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time when we're talking about sound designers now, we're t it's a whole department that will also be dealing with, like we've, for example, with like Urakan or Snakehead, my studio did the sound design as well. My business partner, Jay, did uh, all of the sound design. And uh, what he needed to do was not only edit the dialogue, you know, in, in, in really big productions and in studios, 
productions. Sometimes these roles are all separate, but the sound designer is the head of that department and they'll deal with everything such as editing the dialogue, making sure it's clear and mixed properly, putting in all of the Foley, Mm. which is what people generally think of when they think of sound design, like Foley sounds, you know, like stabbing watermelons and breaking celery sticks and, you know, that kind of sound design for like punches and things. Right. But it's also like dropping in the wind when they're outside, dropping into the program, the sound of wind and mixing that in and then balancing out the dialogue, the sound effects and the music in the final mix. And then it gets even more technical than that, which is mixing for uh, other formats like surround sound or Dolby Atmos. Mm, Okay. And yeah, yeah, it's it's very technical after a certain point. It's no longer creative, you know? I didn't know the word for it for sound design, but I've noticed in horror films that the sound design is super important in terms of footsteps and creaks of doors and, yeah. you know, the, you know, all the, all the sounds of horror movies. Uh, so that's the sound design department, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, on some films, there is a, a bit of a blur, like specifically in a horror film, the, uh, and I've worked on films where I did both, which is really wonderful. It's very time consuming and it's not always reasonable to do that. Or if you work closely with the sound designer, because like in a horror film, like you're saying, you know, maybe it's not the sound of the wind when they're alone in the cabin. Maybe it's a like the bow scratching on the neck of the violin that's standing in for the wind. Mm. And the, those kind of decisions where you have sound designy music uh, or music that was created using non-traditional instruments, sometimes it falls into the category of sound design and those individuals need to work closely together to carry out the wishes of the director. But, you know, they blur sometimes these days, depending on uh, what kind of production and the skill set of the individuals working on it. Fascinating discussion. Thank you for explaining your world. Um, I feel like I know the film and television world in terms of sound design and, and music so much better now. You're very generous with your time, Roman. Thank you for being on DreamPath Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, also really appreciate all the time you've spent with me. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always... Go find your dream path.